It was, quite simply, one of the biggest scandals to ever hit sport in this country. When Harlequins winger Tom Williams bit into a blood capsule to feign injury in a European Cup quarter-final against Leinster, he set into motion a course of events which would cost him, his coach and the club not just their reputations, but so much more. It's ten years since Bloodgate, but the repercussions still reverberate around the sport. In this Ruck podcast special, we're bringing you a programme made by our colleagues at TalkSport to mark a decade since the darkest moment in the history of professional club rugby. Ten years ago, the biggest scandal to hit English rugby erupted. In a dramatic final act of the European Cup quarter-final, one joke shot blood capsule left a huge stain on the game's honour and integrity. The sport was never to be the same again. Williams has been strapped up, he's been on the exercise bike. Oh, how can he come back on? I can't work out how that is possible. You could see him going off with all this blood streaming down, but it didn't cross my mind really. Is there something dodgy going on here? Well, that's obvious blood. And it's Tom Williams who's going off. When a player comes off injured and then you're looking on the sideline, he's on a bike warming up, something's going on, right? And Evans about to come back on. Who punched Tom Williams in the mouth? Tom Williams? I just thought it was a bit coincidental that they needed a drop goal. I remember feeling there's something weird happening here. That is fine, it's quite entitled to come on as blood. Yes, he can come on with Williams going off the block. Dean Richards is there as well. He, t- he told me to learn the rules, learn the rules, and I told him he was cheating. Your conscience is clear on that one? Yeah, very much so. Over the course of the next hour, we'll hear from some of the biggest names in the sport and reveal startling new information which shows how widespread cheating was within rugby. The fallout lasted for months and sent shockwaves through the game. The repercussions are still being felt. It involves some of the most iconic figures in rugby, destroyed careers and left reputations shattered. It was to become known as Bloodgate. There's a line you can't cross. From the doping side of thing or anything, there's a line you cannot cross. The culture at the club was such that it was the norm and I thought nothing of it as I was running onto the pitch and the physio came over to me and said, you're coming off for blood. This for me is like drug taking. I I think it was a disgrace. A decade ago, the Bloodgate bombshell was detonated at the Stoop, the home of Harlequins. For years, they'd been a club characterised by their chequered costume and perceived as the jesters of rugby. But at the start of the millennium, a new regime took over with a mission statement. So I want to turn this into a big club, not just a big name. Mark Evans, Chief Executive 2000 to 2011. It was always a big name. Um, you know, very well known, There's that incredibly sort of iconic shirt. I'll always remember a bit of research we did early on. Do you, you know, it's a real simple sort of market research. You, do you know who we are? Have you heard of us? Oh, yeah, everyone had heard of us. Do you know what we do? Yeah, you're, you're a rugby club. Uh, do you know where we are? Fell off a cliff. No one even knew where we played. I mean, it, that, that was a really light bulb moment. So... It was really, I was there for the best part of 11 years, and it was really to try and build a crowd, build a stadium, and build a conveyor belt of players. Stephen Jones, the renowned Sunday Times rugby correspondent, explains the transformation that took place. Harlequins um, underwent the most st- 
stunning change of culture I think has ever happened in the sports club. Uh, they used to play um, on, a, on a stadium, which is on the site of the stoop now, but it was miles away from play because there was the stand, then there was a, a grass bit, then there was a track. So actually the players were about 300 yards away. And, and thank God, because the rugby they played was terrible and no one went to watch them. Despite the changes off the field, Harlequins were relegated from the top tier of English rugby in 2004. Dean Richards, a legendary figure of English and Lions rugby, was drafted in as head coach. Quinn's forward, George Robson, describes his impact. Dean came in at an interesting time for the club. The club was in a state of disarray, had been relegated out of the top flight for the first time. And he recognised that there was a sort of sleeping giant, that his job was to come in and, and almost wake up. Um, and he came in, looked at changing the culture and, you know, really put his, changed the mindset of the club at the time because obviously it had come from one that had uh, just been relegated and, and wasn't successful. Stephen Jones. Dean was a was a quite a fearsome figure, quite terse in his public pronouncements, just a, a, an unbelievably powerful bear of a man. England World Cup winning head coach Sir Clive Woodward was a teammate of Richards at Leicester. We played in the kind of amateur days. So it wasn't professional days. It would be interesting seeing Dean play as a professional player because I never saw that. I saw him as an amateur, where you know we've all got jobs to go to. So he he wouldn't be the he wouldn't be the, he wouldn't mind me saying this. He wouldn't be the fittest person flying around the pitch. He was no Neil Back. But you know the the players that go into coaching, I really do admire. And Dean's gone into coaching. He's been there a long time now. And, He's got a track record of success, so he's got a magic formula. I don't know what it is, but he seems to have a bit of magic about him where the players generally like this guy and they and they, and they they play for him. Former Quinn second row, George Robson. My, my first appraisal was pretty terrifying, um, but I, I don't necessarily think that that was a, a bad thing for me at the time. You know, I'd, I'd have been, at, you know, 19 years old, giving you what's known in the trade as the Larry Large trousers, I'd imagine, uh, and... I don't think it was a bad thing for me at that time and that stage of my career as a youngster to to have somebody in a position of, of power and strength that had me a little bit on my toes. By 2009, Richards had overhauled the club. They were back in the Premiership and for the first time were in the knockout stages of the European Cup. On April the 12th, Quinns hosted Leinster in the quarterfinals. The Irish province were desperate for success of their own. A place in the last four was the prize. The stakes couldn't have been higher. It was a big day. It was probably the biggest day of the club for a decade or more, actually. Um, ground was full. We built the ground out for day, for days like that. A lot of Leinster fans in the ground, very tight game. George Robson. It was the biggest game of my career at that point uh, in, in, in club rugby. And it was... Uh, it was. It was. Uh, I remember getting to the ground, and I remember just the sheer volume of Leinster fans that had managed to sneak their way in. Brian O'Driscoll was Leinster's talismanic star. It was an arm wrestle, wasn't it? Um, and there was, you know, there was hardly anything between the teams. It was a you know, bit, bit of a wet, miserable day, and it was always going to be a bit of a slog fest. We were using the, you know, the fuel of all those disappointments. The age profile of the team was getting to an age where you know we'd had. Plenty of experience and that disappointment to drive us on. Leinster and Ireland forward Malcolm O'Kelly recalls how close the game was. Harlequins were a far better side than we had appreciated. Far more aggressive, far more competitive, uh, far more physical. 
and we really couldn't come to terms with them. We did feel we were a better side, but we just couldn't get on top of them. 15 minutes from time, Mike Brown, the England fullback, scored a try to leave the match poised at 6-5. Quinn's star fly half was New Zealand all-black Nick Evans. He'd hobbled off early in the second half with a damaged knee. But as the clock ticked down, Leinster's head coach, Michael Checker, noticed something strange was happening. I do remember that... um Nick Evans was warming up on the bike and that did get my attention down there. It was pretty clear when a player comes off injured and then you're looking on the sideline, he's on a bike. Warming up, something's going on, right? Brian O'Driscoll. I just thought it was a bit coincidental that they needed a drop goal. You don't have time to think something untoward is going on, even though it was a bit sketchy that you know they, that, that Quinn's managed to get Nick Evans, who'd gone off with an injury. We knew he wasn't fit to start the game, wasn't properly fit. Then all of a sudden, you know, with five minutes to go, he's back on the bike on the sideline and, and warming up. You're going, you know, what's happening? As Checker watched from the stands, in the dugout was Leinster's operations manager, Ronan O'Donnell. You could see that they were prepping Nick Evans to come back on because they'd no obvious uh, goal kicker on the pitch. So Dean Richards was actually down the sideline at this stage. Um, we had said it to the officials that he can only come back on for a blood injury, and blood injuries aren't that. There's a lot of injuries in rugby, but blood injuries that a guy needs to come off are not very common, and you don't really prep somebody for it. Nigel Owens, one of the best referees in the world, was in charge on that rainy afternoon. So I could see him now, just sort of warming up, sort of thinking, "He's going to come back on here now. Is he trying to win this game with a drop goal, maybe, you know, or, or a penalty?" But I knew he had to come on only under the guidelines, which was for a blood replacement. And that's all I sort of crossed my mind when I just saw him warming up. And then I get alerted then a couple of minutes later or f- five, ten minutes later, whenever it was, um, that they were taking Tom Williams off the fullback for a blood injury. And the physio sort of said to me, he's going off for blood. And I sort of looked over and I could see blood coming out of his mouth. And so then I knew then, well, Nick Evans now is allowed to come back on. And it's Tom Williams who's going off. Malone's gone off. Williams in trouble. Who punched Tom Williams in the mouth? Tom Williams? Michael Checker, the then head coach of Leinster. I asked my analyst to have a look and see where that guy could have got injured, go back through the vision, and uh, we couldn't see it anywhere. And that's when I went down, spoke Christoph Berdos was the fourth official, I remember, because we could speak in French and no one would understand what we were saying down by the sideline. As Checker remonstrated with the officials, O'Donnell accused Quinns of foul play. There was a few words exchanged with, with, with Dean Richards. He, t- he told me to learn the rules, learn the rules, and I told him he was cheating. Um, and he just kept saying, no, learn the rules, learn the rules. So he was pretty adamant that what he was doing was okay so then there was a bit of the delay obviously with Tom coming off um, and in that delay the, uh, both Kevin and Christoph went onto the pitch to speak to Nigel and at that stage I went onto the pitch as well and just said check that it's real blood and I was waved away by Nigel there was some sort of discussions going on, on the sideline so I, I went over to the number four at the time and I wanted to check I just wanted to make sure that if Nick Evans's substitution card had been marked that he'd gone off injured as a replacement, then he wouldn't have been able to come back on. So all I wanted to do was to check, have they marked him as a tactical substitution? And the answer was yes, then he's allowed to come 
back on. Yes, he can come on with Williams going off for blood. As long as the referee is aware that he's going off for blood and you can see the blood, that's it. So, and that's, I was happy with that. And I didn't sort of, wasn't really, cross, didn't cross my mind really. Is there something dodging going on here? One man who wasn't satisfied was O'Donnell, who didn't want to let Williams out of his sight. Immediately after I came back off the pitch, after being waved away by Nigel, um, we had a chat with the doc and our physio. And they brought Tom Williams straight down the tunnel. So our doc went down after them to uh, to check what his injury was and what was causing the, the blood. And he tried to gain access to their change room and, and wasn't able to. So he he was banging on their door, but they, they wouldn't let him in. What did he stay there? 10, 20, 30 seconds and came back out then because he couldn't get in. I spoke to Kevin, the fifth official, because he was looking after us and Christoph was looking after Hardiman's. And I said, that's crazy. Like, we're unbelievably pissed off at this and uh, he showed me his finger and he said yeah I'm, I am too and he showed me his finger and he had some of the blood on it and it lo- just looked like a Crayola marker had burst on his fingers As the drama unfolded Stephen Jones was watching from the stands What I noticed was that sort of ructions on the touchline people arguing and people sort of walking across from one camp to another and, and then one of the camps sort of almost walking towards the person you know it was it was it was a big argument when nick evans came back on i knew that there, that's what it must have been nick evans i couldn't understand why a why he came back on because he was clearly injured he looked terrible he looked drawn when he walked back on and and two was he allowed under the laws and, and i didn't think so so i assumed that's what the argument that was raging in the touchline in front of us was as the seconds ticked down and with their star kicker back on, Quinns were on the hunt for the vital score, which would see them win the match. Brian O'Driscoll. All we were thinking about is controlling our environment where we had to make any drop goal very, very difficult. Obviously squeezing pressure, but making sure that they didn't get any momentum into our 22. And I remember Jordan Turler Hall at one stage carrying well and myself and, and Doris, Gordon Darcy um, hit him you know, together and drove him back five yards, which pushed the, the dropout goal back around the 40-yard mark. And, you know, good luck to any 10 that's going to knock one over in those conditions, um, particularly if you're injured. So we gave ourselves a fighting chance from, from that one shot at goal that they managed to get. It's all about adrenaline now from both sides. Leinster on the chase for the charge down. Nick Evans, not this time. A crock to Nick Evans couldn't convert the drop goal attempt and Leinster held on for a 6-5 triumph. Although they should have been celebrating, O'Driscoll and teammate Malcolm O'Kelly recall how angry O'Donnell was. And He's always quite animated, but I've never seen him quite as animated as this. He knew that you know, that he, he was adamant that it, there'd been cheating going on and that he wasn't going to stand for it and we were going to you know, get to the bottom of it. He was absolutely irate, like banging on the door. I need to come in, need to want to come in, let me in. Uh, and then, you know, that was that was all we had, that's all we, that's all we heard from it at that stage. We were going, what was all that about? He says, yeah, you know, there's some issue with their blood soap. 
It was only at that stage that Owens realised all was not as it seemed. We went in the change rooms afterwards, the number four said, look, there's been an allegation of a fake blood and this and that. And, uh, and I remember sort of asking, what, you know? And, and then he said, look, yeah, they, they say that uh, Tom Williams came off for Nick Evans to go back on and it was fake blood. That's the allegation that's been said by Leinster. And I remember saying to my two test judges at the time, we're lucky that Leinster won the game then. For the integrity of the competition and the game, if there has been fake blood, thank God Leinster won, because if Leinster would have lost that game, then who knows what would have unfolded. Coming up on Bloodgate 10 years on, we discuss what happened next, the cover-up by Quinns, the fallout and the consequences. We also reveal that Bloodgate was just the tip of the iceberg at a time when rugby seemed to be at war with itself. Some excitable words being exchanged down there on the benches when Nick Evans came back on. Uh, did you feel Harlequins were playing by the book? Well, look, it's not for me to say. I didn't say any blood, but, you know, um, we'll, we'll have a look at it and we'll see what the story is. Hand on heart, was Tom Williams bleeding when he came off? He came off with a cut in his mouth and, uh, and you have a right, if somebody has a cut, to bring them off, which is what we, we decided to do. So your conscience is clear on that one? Yeah, very much so. The voices of head coaches Michael Checker and Dean Richards speaking after the Irish province had beaten Harlequin 6-5 in a nail-biting European Cup quarter-final. The game was over, but the drama had just begun. Allegations swirled around that Quinns had cheated and used fake blood to force an illegal substitution. The finger of suspicion pointed to Tom Williams, who was seen winking at a teammate as he left the field. European Rugby Cup disciplinary officer Roger O'Connor. The press had caught on to um, Tom Williams leaving the pitch with with, with the blood and and uh, I think notably winking winking at the the replacement player coming on. So we would have felt at the time then that there's there's something to look into. Um, think things didn't look right. My first protocol would have been okay. Let's let's write pretty direct requests for statements with direct questions to to the, I suppose, the people involved, Tom Williams, Dean Richards, the physiotherapist, and, and, and indeed the, the club doctor. We got statements back. That, that was on the 17th of April, I think it was about five days after the actual, the actual game. They weren't signed, so I asked for signed statements coming back from all of the, the different individuals. Um, and at that time, Harlequins followed up with a photograph as well of, of a cut um, of Tom Williams' lip with, the, I suppose, a statement from the, the medical doctor as well, Wendy Chapman. We got the photograph and the medical statement of the wound on Tom Williams' lip, and we would have felt that we're going to go ahead and bring him his conduct charge, but we don't really have much chance on it because, you know, you, you've, you've professional medics um, saying that, yes, this was a real wound. It was, it was sustained uh, in contact during the game. Um, so it, it tied into, I suppose, the statements and, and what Harlequins were saying at the time. But we, we said we needed to go ahead, I think, for the for the good of the game, really, um, to, if nothing else, fire a shot across the bows of any other clubs or players or coaches who, who are thinking of, of trying to do something similar, you know, and saying, we're watching you. If we feel there's there's something going on, we're going to look into it and we're going to, we're going to do what we feel we should do. Sunday Times rugby correspondent Stephen Jones. It was, it was a story which, if you didn't look into it, you'd completely fallen down on your job. It was horrible. It was like, no, well, 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 
is it that important? Do you have to resort to, to, to all that? And I guess, in a way, quite rightly, the media scented blood, real blood, you, you know, because it was, it, was, it was a massive story and could have collapsed the whole of the Quinn's Club. Then ERC made a decisive breakthrough. We got more footage from Sky, which wouldn't have been previously broadcast in June, um, where you see Steph Brennan, the physiotherapist, coming on to Tom Williams, having a chat with him, appearing to give him something. Tom Williams slipping something into his sock, um, then playing on for, I think it was three or four minutes, and then he goes runs in front of his own post during the break and play. He's quite isolated, and he, he reaches into his sock and bites what was the, the blood capsule, and um, from there on is history. So in July of that year, Harlequins, Tom Williams, Dean Richards, physio Steph Brennan and Dr Wendy Chapman faced a disciplinary committee in London. We would have presented our case, um, the footage and what have you, then Dean, Dean Richards, he responded, he really ran the club's case and Tom Williams' case and Steph Brennan's case. He was, I suppose, their, their, their leading representative in the hearing. Um, he was the puppet master? You could say that. Um, yeah, but he, he, he presented the case and he denied it, flatly denied it, said it, it just didn't happen and um, couldn't have happened. We were quite surprised, really, that they their decision was that they found Tom Williams guilty and everybody else um, not guilty. From our point of view, it was satisfying that we, we had actually proved the case. Um, but then there was there was dissatisfaction as well that we felt it was, was much deeper than the player acting on his own behalf. Stephen Jones of the Sunday Times explains the widespread reaction. No one uh, dreamt, you couldn't ever dream that, that it was going to end there. Tom uh, was a sacrificial goat for a time, but then you realised other implications and that Tom was carrying the can for someone else. Williams teammate George Robson with his view. I definitely felt sympathy for Tom. But I also looked at it from a, another point of view where you go, but yeah, maybe, you know, maybe he's doing the right thing or, you know, it's difficult to say, isn't it? With Williams found to have acted alone, the Rugby Players Union stepped in. Damien Hopley is their chief executive. We brought Tom in, I think, the very next morning to really just talk through the whole thing and then put the lawyers in place and put an arm around him because we just felt that he'd been hung out to dry. And um, I think even at the time, Tom was sort of adamant that the club would look after him and there'd obviously been discussions going on behind the scenes. Um, and I guess we were just nervous that we didn't want him to be put in this invidious position, which ironically he was throughout the next th few months, um, which I think was a, was a huge strain on him. And, and you know, he was a young man trying to play rugby and had been put in this position. So the 25-year-old faced a huge decision. Take the year-long suspension or turn whistleblower and reveal the shocking truth. The darkest moment was on that Thursday evening prior to the deadline being at midday on Friday where I was sat in a room with 12 of the board members with my wife Alex and former Harlequins uh, captain Will Skinner and we were going round and round and round discussing the implications of me coming forward and telling the truth and, that, and the implications it would have on the wider club as a whole, on the people such as Wendy Chapman, such as Steph Brennan uh, and Dean Richards as well, uh, as well as the players and the, the impact it would have on potentially some, some people's jobs at the club because they're worried about the money side of things, if they got a fine or the, the legal bills that would, would come in thereafter or whether we get kicked out of Europe. So I was having to weigh up what was right for me, what was right for the club and then what was right 
overall. And that moment in that house in, in Cobham where the board meeting was, was happening, I was sat there going round and round in circles and being offered all sorts by the club not to say anything, to take the, take the uh, potential year's extra ban. So it would have been a two-year ban uh, and then come back into it after that so that the club could, could, could get away uh, with, with the manufacturing of the, the blood substitution. That was the lowest moment, without a doubt. Williams recounts how he came to his decision. We were going round, round the room over and over again and I just got frustrated and, and, and I said, look, we're not getting anywhere here. By this point, my wife, Alex, had, had walked outside uh, and she got, as myself and Will Skinner went out, she goes, what, why have you come out? We haven't got anywhere yet. We haven't achieved anything. No decisions, decisions have been made. And she was really frustrated and, and Alex just said to me, look, do you mind if I go back in? I'll only be five, ten minutes. And I said, look, go ahead, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Uh, and Alex went back in to the house and came out 15 minutes later. And I, I said, well, what did you say? And she said, oh, I'll tell you in the car. So we got in the car and she, I said, come on, what, what did you say? And she goes, look, we can go home now, it's fine. Um, I just asked them whose fault it was we were here. And she went around each and every member of the board at the time, including the QC who was representing Harlequins, and asked them whose fault is it we are here. And to a man, they all said Dean Richards. Uh, and then 5.30 the next morning I had a phone, a phone call from the club saying we've accepted Dean Richards' resignation and uh, we want to support you wholeheartedly and we want you to tell the truth. So Williams decided to come clean. His statement revealed that Dean Richards was the mastermind. He told Williams that he'd be replaced for a blood injury. Steph Brennan handed him a blood capsule and told him, do the right thing. As Leinster banged on the medical room door, he revealed how he told Dr Chapman to cut his lip. The second hearing held in Glasgow in August 2009 was a formality. The cover-up was exposed, Richards knew it and the game was up. European Rugby Cup disciplinary officer Roger O'Connor. In the first hearing he would come across as quite aggressive. He'd fix the stare on you. Yeah. Second hearing, I suppose it was a bit different because... All, all evidence is circulated 24 hours before, at, at least 24 hours before a hearing. So they would have been aware that we had Tom Williams' affidavit. Um, he'd have seen Tom Williams' affidavit, you know, probably days before the hearing. So I suppose the, the hearing, besides the legal formalities, was was, was somewhat of a foregone conclusion, you know, because um, there, there was no escaping from it. Um, and, you know, everybody in the end really put their hands up once they ran out of um, legal loopholes to to get to to get off on I think um, we were down to the facts of the case and they there was nowhere to go Harlequin's coach Dean Richards has been banned from coaching for three years by the ERC for his part in the Bloodgate scandal the player at the heart of the Bloodgate scandal Tom Williams one year suspension has been reduced to four months obviously very disappointed and uh, a little bit surprised three years is a long time and uh, you know I'll reflect on this overnight I think I deeply regret the role that I have played in this unacceptable incident that has done so much damage to the image of rugby union. I hope that as a result of this episode, no player or employee will ever be put in such a compromised position. And if they are, then they will always tell the truth, as I wish I had done from the outset. Finally, Harlequins admitted their guilt. Chief executive at the time was Mark Evans. We, we put our hands up afterwards and said, look, we, we handled this wrong, it wasn't right, we should... And everyone said, and, you know, if you had your time again, and hindsight's... You, you know, you can't do that and you shouldn't do that. And, 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 and there should be consequences. 
still to come on Bloodgate 10 years on, some of the biggest names in rugby give their verdict on the sanctions handed down. Plus, we discover this was not a one-off. The full extent of the cover-up at Harlequins had been revealed. Suspensions swiftly followed. The axe fell hardest of all on Dean Richards, banned from coaching for three years. Lawrence Delalio, 2003 England World Cup winner. It did seem like he carried the can for the, for the whole of the club. Some people will argue, well, he was the director of rugby. He was the person in direct you know, charge of, of the team and of everyone involved in the team, the support staff at the time of the incident. But uh, no real sanctions were taken against the club. Uh, and it did seem to me that three years is a long time out of the game, you know, uh, and he was made to be the, the full guy, the scapegoat, if you like. Um, and he was on very close, if not, you know, if not uh, one of the leading candidates to, to coach England at the time. Despite the fact that Leinster went on to win the European Cup, O'Driscoll doesn't hold back on his views. You know, this is out now cheating. And for me, there's different grades of cheating. You know, is Neil Back's hand of hand of back in, in 2001 or 2002 cheating. Yeah, it is. It's a form of it, but it's, do you know what? It's, it's, that's gamesmanship. For me, that's, that's acceptable, but it's borderline. This, for me, is like drug, drug taking. So I, I, don't, I put that in, this, in, this, in the same uh, category. I, I think it was a disgrace. I think it was a disgrace, and... Um, irrespective of the individuals, I think you know the act of trying to take a blood capsule create a situation that wasn't real to get a player on is is a real form of cheating, and um, it was wrong, and they got caught and rightly so, and they got banned and rightly so, and they have to live with the reputational damage that comes with that. England World Cup winning head coach Sir Clive Woodward disagrees. I think it was massively over the top, I th- I, you know, because it, we're all we're all going through this kind of, as you rightly say, Mark. We kind of it was it was kind of the, the period where we're all trying to find the level of what we should be operating at. I don't think what he did, to be brutally honest, was was that heinous. It was just one of those one of those things. He, he tried to get away with something he didn't, and he 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 got found out and got caught lesson. But I, I don't, it's 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 not in the same league as a as a doping offence or something like this, where you absolutely. To me, it was just daft and no, no more than that and I think the punishment was a bit severe is in my, my opinion. Malcolm O'Kelly a veteran of Leinster and Ireland is another with harsh words for Richards. We could question Dean Richards' morals and say like what, what, what would he do? What would he do to win a match? Or what wouldn't he do to win a match? And obviously he'll go pretty low to win a match to include something like that in, 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 his, in his plan. Surprisingly, not everyone at Leinster condemned Richards. I think people can make mistakes in life. Michael Checker, Leinster head coach back in 2009 and now in charge of Australia. People make, people make errors and they shouldn't be castigated from here to high country for it, you know what I mean? It's just the way it is. I think that to make, like making that decision, yeah, was a mistake and a bad one, right? And I have no, I agree with Drico on that stuff for sure. I just, yeah, I don't know Dean Richards. I don't have met him 
very much, maybe once or twice, but if he walk up to me in the street, it's not like I'm going to have, a, you know, I'm going to shake hands with him and have a drink or a coffee or whatever if he wanted to. It's not like, it's not personal, you know what I mean? It's in the in the confines of the the white lines, things happen. Lots of things happen. Some things you want that you wish you could take back. Uh, some things you don't, you wish you could do more. Uh, you know, I, I be people out there, I would hazard a guess that people out there have tried it, you know, tried it and maybe even got away with it. I don't know. For me personally, it would never come into the, the psyche. European Rugby Cup disciplinary officer Roger O'Connor. Maybe he was unlucky, you know, with, um, if you're involved with the game at that time and, and indeed years before it, you would have heard of um, rumours of, of goings-on such as this, um, I suppose using the, the blood injury regulation to your own advantage and, um, you know, maybe Dean was the unlucky one who was caught out. Referee Nigel Owens. The people concerned were, were dealt with uh, and it sent a huge message out that this was not acceptable. Yes, you're disappointed, you know, when somebody of a standing like that in in the game and the integrity that rugby has, you know, does push those boundaries uh, to an unacceptable limit. So, of course, you are disappointed in that context. And, um, you know, and it, and it did make you think, you know, well, well is, he, is he the first? I certainly hope that it's the last, but, it, but is he the first that's done this? The RFU, the custodians of the English game, launched an immediate inquiry. Francis Barron was chief executive at the time. You know, is this the tip of the iceberg we're seeing? The good news, (laughs) when we did all the analysis and research, was that the answer was no. It was not the tip of the iceberg. The game was basically clean, honest, at all levels, including premiership level. These were isolated incidents. Um, But that didn't mean we didn't have to take action to make sure that they didn't become widespread. Uh, And that's what we did. During the making of this programme, TalkSport has uncovered another example of fake blood at Harlequins, also under Richards. This time it was in a league game in the English Premiership. I'm George Robson. Um, I'm a retired professional rugby player. Um, and in 2009, I was playing second row uh, and I was on the pitch when uh, the whole Bloodgate incident unfolded. I've got no problem speaking about my own experience. And there, there would have been a game uh, um, up at Welford Road where I... I uh, would have acted as a blood substitute coming off um, and uh, by having a, a piece of gauze with some you know some blood on it on my head um, and that's my that's my experience of, of the whole thing so I was aware of it as a player uh, and and so I, my understanding was that this is the protocol this is what what we're doing and the rationale is it's going to help us win a rugby game so you're saying in a match for harlequins at welford road against leicester you willingly took part in in subterfuge cheating was it a capsule that you cracked on your head or uh, it was a, it was a gauze with blood on it that wasn't my blood or i don't know if it was blood i'm, I'm presuming it wasn't blood um and uh put it on my head obviously it wouldn't be very effective uh these days because i've I haven't got any hair, but at the time I had a quite a decent head of hair, and yeah, obviously if you if you look at a guy lifts a gauze off his head revealing blood, you you don't have any real reason to question it. So um, that would have been for the purposes of getting a, a line out caller onto the pitch. I didn't see anything wrong with that. I didn't think that this is crazy. I didn't think this is ridiculous. And I look back now, 
you know, 10 years on, I speak to some of my my contemporaries or, you know, people I'm, I'm, I'm working with or studying with now, I've sh- shared some of that insight and they look at me like I've got three heads. Uh, and I think it's remarkable. It kind of goes to show um, how social norms can be created within, the, within a culture uh, and then reinforced to a point where you don't question things, which I think is profound and I think it's really interesting. But again, I don't think it's unique to, to rugby or sport or anything. I think it's just, this, unfortunately, this is what human beings sometimes do. Would people be naive to think that you only did it yourself and that no one else did it? Or you talked about the protocol, in inverted commas, of what was expected of players at the time. So would someone be naive to think that I acted on my own yeah. within the constraints of the team, prepared a gauze uh, with blood on it, put it onto my own head, asked to be substituted, then came off the pitch? I'm not sure. I mean, you'd have to ask people to make their own mind up on that one, I think. Even more seriously, TalkSport has also uncovered a secret report in which Richards makes further damning allegations. These were made in a confidential meeting as part of an image of the game task force. We have a copy. Dean Richards asserted that the use of fake blood, cutting players, reopening wounds, feigning injury in the front row and jabbing players with anaesthetic all occur regularly throughout the game. Richards was asked to provide examples to support his assertion. This he did, highlighting seven separate incidents of cheating, five of which involved blood. We've seen the cases he pointed out and can disclose that one of these claims goes right to the top of English rugby. Coming up in the final part of Bloodgate 10 Years On, Tom Williams opens up to TalkSport and we discover what happened next to the others caught up in the eye of the storm. A lot of lot of people got involved, sucked into it. I think some of them were responsible or partly responsible, but others were not. And uh, but that's a sad thing, you know. When a bomb goes off, you get collateral damage, and uh, innocent bystanders can get hurt, and that's what happened. Welcome back to Bloodgate. Ten years on, as you heard there from former RFU chief Francis Barron, the Bloodgate scandal had consequences far and wide. We'll find out shortly how severe the ramifications were for those on the periphery. But first, Tom Williams, the player at the centre of Bloodgate. I spoke to him a decade on from the incident which changed his life. It's very strange thinking about it in that perspective when you think about 10 years. It's flown by in some respects, but then in, in other ways, those whatever it is, 3,650 days it's been since the event, it hasn't left my mind at any one point. It's prevalent in my life it's there and it's something that will I think be with me forever do you think about it every day you talk about those 10 years 365 times 10 every day it's there in the mind at the forefront or the back of your mind it's there or thereabouts and varying levels of uh, severity I'd I'd call it severity because at at its worst it it really bogs me down thinking about it at at its best it's something that I just like to brush off and go oh come on stop being silly it was so long ago you've learned from it now time to move on try and forget about it how, how do you cope with that how do you rationalize that it must be very hard it's certainly not easy um having this this cloud hanging over you and um it has though been brought into perspective by the advent 
uh, of a new career. So I've, in the last four years, moved from playing to coaching, where I'm coaching the academy at Harlequin, so specifically the, the transitional group, the uh, 18 to 21-year-olds. And when you put it into that perspective, I now have to look at it, what can I help these guys with? How can I impart that knowledge that I've learned through the good times and unfortunately the bad times onto those guys so that they don't repeat my mistakes or at least get themselves into the best position that those mistakes aren't repeated. And just talk about your memories of, of that time when you do reflect. Um, what are your abiding memories of, of, that, of that, that period in your life and that period with Harlequins? I think it's best if we if we go back before. I was an aspiring rugby player. I had ambition to be uh, an England player and uh, and uh, to to represent the British and Irish Lions. The zenith for any European rugby player in the British Isles. And before prior to that point, I was just always trying to to impress. I was always trying to be part of a Harlequins team. I was always slightly on the periphery. I was waiting for my breakthrough. I wasn't a, an Hugo Monnier or a Danny Kerr who are who are surefire starters who are. Well, in, well on in their careers in terms of international recognition and I still harboured that ambition and then this happened uh, the culture at the club was such that it was the norm and I thought nothing of it as I was running onto the pitch and the physio came over to me and said you're coming off for blood I thought it was just something I needed to do to help Harlequins get ahead and help myself get ahead Can you talk about a little more about the environment under Dean Richards which from all accounts and by talking to other people was a fairly oppressive regime uh, it was a, certainly a very successful and a winning mentality was was there and probably at all costs, unfortunately. If you think about the coercive nature of the culture then, it was do what you need to do to get the job done. And uh, in some respects, it led to us having relative success. Uh, but also it led to us blurring the lines between, or muddying the waters is probably a better term, between what is right and wrong in terms of sporting context and actually outside of sport as well. And in terms of... You're now 35. Looking back, looking in the mirror at the 25-year-old Tom Williams, what do you see and what do you think, how the heck did I get myself into that? Yeah, if I had, if I had the opportunity, I would go back and tell myself or ask myself, just ask the question, uh, because you've got to discover things, these things for yourself. Uh, ask myself a question, why are you playing rugby? What is it you want to achieve and how do you want to achieve it? And those are the questions I'd ask myself. It's like, well, of course, I want to play for England. I want to be a British and Irish Lion. I've got the perspective now to know I never would have made that because I didn't have the ability. However, I'd rather have found that out by simply not being good enough and not having had a shot whether, rather than having to ask myself a question, is it because of Bloodgate? And then if I, if I, I go back also and I say to myself, have pride in whatever you do. Uh, because certainly there was no pride in trying to win in the manner in which we tried to win in that competition at that point. Dean Richards was the mastermind behind the cheating scandal and suffered the most severe punishment, a ban from coaching for three years. Richards declined to take part in this documentary, but here he is speaking to TalkSport in 2011, two years into his suspension. I wish I hadn't done it in the first place, and and, th and that's the first thing. You know, you, I don't think that I held myself and, and, and conducted myself in a proper fashion afterwards. Um, a to not admit it in the first place, place to lie, and then to you know to, to do the cover up was totally totally the wrong thing. I should have just held my hands up and said right. You know, a I shouldn't have done it, but once it was done, I should have held my hands up and said right. I was wrong. My fault, and 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 that's that's how it should have happened. 
Richards has gone on to rebuild his coaching career at Premier side Newcastle Falcons, a club he joined immediately after his ban ended. But what happened to the others? Steph Brennan was the physio who handed Tom Williams that fateful blood capsule. He was due to start work as an England physio until his role in Bloodgate was exposed. After being struck off by his medical governing body, he succeeded in an appeal and he's now working for rugby league side Sydney Roosters. And what of the doctor? Wendy Chapman lost her position at Harlequins, lost a post that she had just achieved with a well-known county cricket club, lost her job at the private school where she did the sports injury clinic, ended up for other not necessarily connected reasons, losing her A&E consultancy and effectively has had no proper work since. The voice of Mary O'Rourke QC, the barrister who defended Dr Chapman between 2009 and 2011. And I think it's a tragedy that she has lost that as a result of an incident in which she wasn't involved. She knew nothing about it. The first she knew about it was when she walked through the door of the dressing room and a player in tears said to her, help me cover up the wrong that I have done. The one who got brought in after the event, who was not part of the original conspiracy, who got dragged into the cover-up, as a result of a crying, whinging player, is the one who ends up being the most damaged 10 years on. So that's where the key individuals at the heart of this story are 10 years on. But how did Harlequins move on? The club whose reputation was tainted forever. Bloodgate was a really, what's the right, it was a real, I, th- I think I did say at the time, didn't I, I think a stain on the history of the club. I think I'd, I think I'd stick with that. I think that's, that's not a bad description. Mark Evans faced calls to resign after it emerged that the club had tried to suppress Tom Williams' account of events. But he stayed on as Quinn's chief executive. Quinn's, like all sports clubs, they, they're, they're a, you're only there for a while. You're part of the story, aren't you? And, and, and you know, some people are there for a year and some people are there for 20 years. And Quinn's bounced back. I, I, I went in a couple of years later and it was time to my own sort of, I decided that 11 years was enough. Um, and, you know, with impeccable timing, we won the premiership the next year. You know, within three years, they had probably their best day in the history of the club. So Harlequins won the 2012 Premiership final with a try ironically for Tom Williams and 20 points kicked from the boot of Nick Evans. David Ellis replaced the outgoing Mark Evans. Ten years on, we asked him if Bloodgate still cast a cloud over his club. I think it will always be part of our history, um, but we park it. It's like anything, you learn from your mistakes and you make yourself stronger and you move forward. And I think we've done that. I'm proud of what the team are doing on and off the field. It's the most competitive premiership we've, we've ever seen and off the field we're at a stage where hopefully in the near future we'll be looking to expand the stoop here. We're doing more in our community than we've never done before. We're leading the way on parity in our sport. Uh, you know What the team are doing in terms of things in our local schools and mental resilience programmes, we've, we've taken a part of our history but we've built on that and we're going forward so we've come a long way and I'm very proud of what the, the club are doing. And so the game goes on with many lessons learned. Nigel Owens, who's become one of the most respected figures in the sport, provides a final assessment. I hope the people involved learnt as well that, you know, that was crossing a line that is 
that is not acceptable. And, and I think that sent out a clear message in that watershed moment, I, I think. And yes, it is disappointing that people will go to that length in, 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 in blatantly cheating rather than pushing the boundaries of gamemanship. And yes, it was. It was a huge watershed moment in the sport. And it, and it did show, you know, that, that rugby cannot take the moral high ground that it is above any other sport when it comes to... To, to honesty and integrity like that. And, and the core value of rugby union is that integrity and, and honesty. It shows that we, we need to maintain that value of the game. And it shows that people are willing to cross that line in winning at all costs. And, uh, and although you can understand why they feel the need to do that, you know, they also have to understand that it, it's not what we want to be part of of the game of rugby, which builds on that character of respect and, and integrity. And so, ten years on, what have we learned from Bloodgate? Well, it was a pivotal time when rugby had to confront some of its demons. On the upside, the game has never seen anything like it since. But lives and careers do remain deeply affected. Other serious issues now confront the game, but it's doubtful any will have the impact on rugby of that tiny 10 pence capsule of fake blood. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.